Are you familiar with Cliff Notes? It's a little yellow and black pamphlet book that for generations have been educating our children. Most students use Cliff Notes or Spark Notes to have an understanding of a certain topic. They are used, they are supposed to be used to help supplement reading a text. However, my guess is most teenagers and many adults probably use Cliff Notes as a substitution rather than supplementation. You see, Cliff Notes was designed to give a summary of a work, to give you the highlight reel. And after you've read Cliff Notes, you should be able to answer the major questions of the book or the movie or whatever it is you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be able to have a comprehensive understanding so that you can regurgitate it on a test. It talks about the main characters and the plot lines and summarizes everything that's important. But Cliff Notes was never meant to be a substitute. It was only supposed to supplement the whole. And when we come to Ezra 4, we find something like a Cliff Notes version of all of Scripture. A short and condensed version of everything that we are supposed to find. Of, an, of the Christian experience of living in the world that is tainted with sin. As one pastor introduces Ezra 4, he says that most of us read Scripture much like we read Ezra. We read Ezra 1 and we see God is providentially moving in a pagan king and allows his people to return to the land. A second exodus. Exodus 2, the people returned to the land that God had promised to give his people. Ezra 3, the people build the altar. They begin to build the foundations of the temple. And most of us would expect we read Ezra 4, and everything was good in the land, and the people were happy. But Ezra 4 actually gives us a gut check. It explains to us that for those who do the will of the Lord, we shouldn't believe the motto, life is good. And much like we have done the men's Bible study and faith weaver friends who've studied Daniel, much like the women's Bible study and the youth group who are going through 1 Peter and our adult studies that read Revelation, all of these books, just like Ezra 4, give us a microcosm of what living in a world full of sin looks like. It's hard. And for those who follow Christ by faith, will have a hard time. They'll face opposition. Because this is the narrative of Scripture. From Genesis 3 until Christ returns in Revelation 20, the people of God have been frustrated in their work for the kingdom of God. You see, when we get to Ezra 4, we should be good readers of the text. A new character is introduced. And much like when you read a book or watch a movie, we should pay attention when a new character is introduced to the text. Anyone read Genesis 3? The serpent was introduced, and guess what happened next? In Ezra 4, a new character is introduced and the plot thickens. We see, we read 
that these are adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And we'll talk a lot about them later. But what this chapter reveals to us, the reality of the situation, is that what the people in Ezra 4 experience is the same thing that we as the people of God experience in our everyday lives. Resistance. This chapter tells us that confrontation is inevitable. Whether it comes from outside of us, as we see in Ezra 4, or as we see in the book of Judges, from the inside of us. When we seek to do God's work, we will be met with opposition. There will be those who oppose us, those who lie about us. There will be those who try to force our work as kingdom workers to come to a halt. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Ezra, and I'm not going to try to compact four sermons into one. But in Ezra 1, we find ourselves in 538, where God moved in Cyrus and sent his people back. The people came back, and you remember, 70 verses of names. I made Blake read that one. And then we see them rebuild the altar because the people's sin need to be dealt with in the way that God prescribed their sin to be dealt with in the Pentateuch. Then six months later, they start building the foundations of the temple. And then this author just picks up what something he foreshadowed in Ezra 3.3. 3. Because in Ezra 3.3, 3, he says, The people set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples in the land. In Ezra 4.1, we are introduced to these people. But we must ask the questions, why? Why were the people of God afraid of the people in the land? For I'm sure you all remember, in number 6, God told his people, do not fear the people in the land when you enter into it. Why were they afraid of the people in the land? We will return to that later. But I want us to see three things this morning. Three things that God's people must do. God's people must be resistant. God's people must be realistic. And God's people must be resilient. So God's people must be resistant. We must stand firm against opposition. These people in the land, they come and they offer help, right? They claim that they serve the same God and they make sacrifices to the same God as the people do. But they also claim we have been brought here by Ezra Haddon. And I'm sure you know all of your ancient Near East history. Ezra Haddon was a king of Assyria. And what happened when Assyria took over the northern kingdom is they deported all the people of Israel and they repopulated the area with other people. And so they had some of the same worship strategies that Israel had, but they were people of the land. And the leaders of Israel said, Something that seemed kind of snotty, right? I mean, if we had just moved to a new location 
and we're trying to build a house and someone comes to offer to help us, wouldn't it be kind of snotty for us to say, we have nothing to do with you. Leave us alone. I mean, just switch it. Switch it around. Your next door neighbor, they just move in. You take over a plate of cookies and they respond this way. We have nothing to do with you. We would be offended. But let me assure you, this is not the situation that we have here in Ezra 4. Ezra tells us they are adversaries. The NIV translates this as enemies. These are foes. These are antagonists. And we see what they're really like in the verses that follow. When they were rejected, what did they do? Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. These are the people of the land. They're syncretists. They've amalgamated or tried to amalgamate different religions into one. They're consumerists. How many of you like to shop at a particular store? I'll be honest with you. I love going to Kroger. I'm from Bentonville, Arkansas. I should be a Walmartian, but I'm not. Kroger has better produce. Kroger has a better butcher. It's just, it's just better. And when I go there, on the price tag, it tells me how much money I'm going to save with everything that I purchase. And then I have the, the app on my phone, so I get to use coupons and save more money. And then I get to put in my phone number at the end and save money on gas. I love going to Kroger. It's great. But as soon as someone else offers me a better price, I'm gone. Right? As soon as I see something else on a better sale, I'm going there. I'm a consumerist when it comes to Kroger. I do not have a covenantal relationship with Kroger, the second it's better, I'm gone. As soon as Fayette Packing has a sale on meat, see you, Kroger, I'll be back next week. This is the people of the land. Wherever they saw something better or what they thought was better, they went to it. Oh, we'll pray to God, but, you know, I think we're going to pray to this God too, and we're going to pray to this God too, and we're going to worship in this way, even though God says to do it in this way. This is a consumerist way of living. And what the people in Ezra do, the people of God say, we have nothing to do with this because we are called to worship Yahweh alone. We are covenantalists, not consumerists. And this is what Moses warned the people about. He said, when you go into the land, do not make a covenant with them. Do not allow your children to intermarry with them. Why? Not not because they were racist, not because they didn't like them, but what he says in Deuteronomy 7, 4 is, they will lead your children to worship other gods. His concern is with their covenantal fidelity to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So we have this contrast. These people have been brought into the land by Ezra Haddon. And what's the theme of Exodus? You are the people that I brought out of Egypt by my mighty hand. 
Ezra is contrasting these two people, these two types of people who claim they worship Yahweh, and God's people are faithful in their exclusivity. They are faithful by saying, we worship Yahweh alone, and we want nothing to do with how you worship him. And could you imagine the headlines in the Samaritan Gazette? Racial intolerance. Sectarianism. Fundamentalism. You see, the people in Jerusalem in 536 B.C., we're experiencing something that we are facing in our very lives. You wonder what Ezra 4 has to do with the church, and Ezra 4 has to do everything with the church. If we speak of marriage in a biblical way between a man and a woman, we will be charged with narrow-mindedness, with being unsensitive. We will be charged with intolerance because beliefs and absolutes has been outgrown. It's old fashioned. We live in an age of religious correctness that you should only speak about Jesus being your way of salvation and not the only way of salvation. If you say there is no other way to God than through Jesus, then you will be seen as oppressive. But this is living faithful to God's covenant. We will experience intolerance. Because the world says that everyone must tolerate everyone else. Unless you are intolerant of us, and then we will untolerate you. The only ones who will be cast out and said that they are sociably unacceptable, are the ones that claim God alone is the way for salvation. This is what the people in Ezra 4 are dealing with. Derek Thomas says in his commentary, this wasn't some civic construction. They weren't building roads or a bridge. If they were doing that, they would have gladly accepted the help. But they were building the temple. This was the center of the religious belief. This was the heart of their worship. This was the vitals of their faith. The temple construction was everything to them according to the word of God, as he had revealed himself in the history of redemption. If they wavered on this, they would waver on anything. They resisted. They did not compromise. They didn't say or they didn't allow the world to come in when the world wanted to add its own flair, when the world wanted to add its own interpretation of being progressive. The leaders of the tribe said, we have nothing to do with you. They stood firm. Being faithful to God means being exclusive in our worship and worshiping the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Him alone. They would not and could not worship Yahweh and something else. And as we, as God's people, we cannot compromise to worship God alone 
through faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, revealed in Scripture alone. But remember this, syncretism, commercialism, isn't new. This is the same type of world that Peter and Paul and Jesus spoke to. And they looked into the face of their culture and they demanded covenant fidelity. Jesus looked into his scoffers and said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through me. This is the life in God's kingdom. It's not believe in Jesus and all your problems will go away. It's not believe in Jesus and all your relationships will be perfect. It's not believe in Jesus and everyone will like your TikTok videos. Life following Jesus is we worship Jesus alone and we're exclusive. We're covenantal. And there will be times when it's going to be really hard. There there will be times when it will be good. There will be times when Jesus will lead us as a good shepherd and let us lie down in green pastures. But there will also be times when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a reality check that we need to remember as God's people. Are we prepared to stand firm? And are we training our children to stand firm? Because if, let's be honest, it's going to be really hard for them. And if they do not stand on the word alone, they may not be able to say, we have nothing to do with you. This is the classic tale of Scripture. The seed of the serpent and his animosity against the seed of the woman. Church, we are called to stand firm against opposition. God's people must resist. God's people must also be realistic. So in this chapter, I don't know if you noticed, we covered a span of 100 years. It's in there. I don't actually between verses five to seven, we cover a hundred years. And then we go through 13, 14, and by the time we get to verse 22, 23 and 24, we go back another hundred years. So we start in chronological order, jump a hundred years, go through the chapter, and then jump back a hundred years to the beginning. And we might ask ourselves, why does this happen? Well, you see, Ezra's writing the story, and I don't know if you've noticed, Ezra hasn't even showed up yet. Ezra doesn't happen until chapter 7. But what Ezra is doing is he's not, doing, he's not writing this to an audience who has the perspective that we do. We, we see the timeline, we read through it, then we get confused and we read through it again, and we've jumped and we've jumped and we've jumped. We start at the beginning, we go to the end, we come back to the beginning. But Ezra's readers start at the ending And he pushes them back to the future or pushes them back to the past. Why does he do that? Because this is their history. 
This is what their parents and their grandparents experienced. Animosity. Lies against them. These letters that were written to Darius, Darius ruled from 522 to 486. But then these letters to Artaxerxes, he ruled from 465 to 423. And then we read these accusations. They are building a rebellious and wicked city. And then the impetus to say, well, they're not doing anything, but what they will do is they're not going to pay. They talk to Artaxerxes like he's, they're going to hurt his pocketbook. Remember from chapter 2, these are priests and Levites, almost all of them. They're not going to wage a war against Artaxerxes, right? That's like giving me a gun and saying, go fight in a battle. It's not going to happen. But why is Ezra doing this? He's showing the people that are reading this book, this is real life for God's people. It's been happening for hundreds of years. They've been trying to frustrate the building of the temple. And then, as you see at the end, they stop the building of the wall because the temple is already finished. They go through these four different kings and then back through to remind the people of God, life is is going to be hard. We must be realistic with ourselves. It's not a, and things ended happily ever after. God's people must be realistic. There will always be opposition. This isn't new. He's telling them, wake up. This is your history. This will happen. There is nothing new under the sun, and we shouldn't expect anything different in the church today. These letters have innuendo in them, saying that they will do stuff that they will not do, saying stuff that might happen. The seed of the serpent will always frustrate the seed of the woman. The people of the land, the people of the world will always frustrate the work of God's people. And then we see in verse 24, their work came to a halt. In 2001, Premier Radio, which was at the time the only Christian radio broadcast in London, received several complaints against one of the pastors. And because the station got its license from the government, the government took the complaints and tried to see if they were valid. And the complaint of one of the preachers, or the complaint was that one of the preachers was unfair, offensive, and intolerant. He was labeled as a Marxist, Maoist, Nazi and that indeed he was xenophobic and a blasphemer whose thoughts and ideas were more sinister than racism and serving as an impetus for persecution. So if you're like me, I was like, well, what did he, what did he say? Because I've heard a lot of pastors say lots of crazy things. So I, what did he say? In his sermon on the lame man in Peseda, Dr. Michael Yusuf suggested that the mainline churches were following politically correct agenda 
and accommodating to secular culture instead of trusting in Jesus alone. He said, Jesus is the true redeemer. He is the only savior and the only one who could make you whole. He insisted that the only cure for society was to follow the word of Jesus Christ. In addition, Dr. Yusuf expressed his conviction that it was crazy to claim that one could live in a homosexual life and be a good Christian at the same time if you read Romans 1. And who was the complainant? The Mysticism and Occultism Federation. And their complaint was upheld. Premier Radio was taken off the airwaves because they were deemed as offensive because they denigrated the beliefs of other people. Their work came to a halt. They were proclaiming the truth of the word of God, and the world said that they were liars and evildoers. Are we being realistic with ourselves with what is happening? Are we just expecting our lives to be easy as we do the work of God? Are we remembering our fathers and our forefathers and the forefathers before them that the work of God is not easy? It will always face oppression. It will always face subversion. This is the battle that has been going on since Genesis 3. The world in its blindness of its own sin is out to seek and destroy the kingdom of God because that is all they know to do because they are blinded by their sin. Satan and his seed are fighting a battle that they think that they can win. They live in a false narrative because they don't believe that Christ is risen today. There will be opposition, whether it's 1536, 2001, or 2060. God's church will face animosity from the seed of the serpent. God's people must be resistant. God's people must be realistic. And God's people must also be resilient. Are you discouraged? Are you discouraged in the face of post-modernity? Are you scared of where the church is? Or what might happen to the church? Or where the church is going? Are you scared in the face of deconstructionism? In being slandered against? In being lied about? When Jesus was crucified, it seems that God's work came to a halt. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. But there's hope. Because on the third day, Christ rose from the grave and rose in victory over death. He defeated the seed of the serpent. He crushed his head. 
It was in the face of opposition that Jesus said, I will build my church in enemy territory. This is who we follow. Be faithful. Follow Christ by faith. Faith in his word. Faith in his covenant. Faith that he has actually already won the battle. Death has no sting over us. We should not be afraid. Faith in the empty tomb. Faith that Jesus is on his throne and he's coming back again. Do not be discouraged. We must resist. We must be realistic, but we must be resilient because Christ is coming back. The Lord is at work. He's given us all the means to follow him by faith. You know, it's interesting. When God made a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, he said, fear not, I am your shield. In verse 7, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. See, these are the promises that the people in Ezra 4 should remember. In Israel, every man was circumcised on the eighth day. They received the sign and the seal of God's covenant promises. Now, I thought about not saying this because it might sound vulgar or ill-mannered, but I'm going to say it anyway. Think of the amount of times that men think of their private parts. That is how many times we should remember God's promises to us. They were circumcised. They should remember God's faithfulness. That's what we do when we come read the word. That's what we do when we receive the Lord's Supper and the baptism. These are the signs and seals that God is faithful to his people even when they fall away. These people were supposed to remember the Exodus. They were supposed to remember God going before them and conquering Jericho. They were supposed to remember the promises of David. We are supposed to remember that Christ is risen and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Lord is at work. The Lord is in the midst of us. The Lord is alive. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. The Lord is on our side. Trials should push us to follow Jesus. That's what, that's what this passage is calling the people of God to do. Follow after the Lord who is faithful. But next time, in, next time in Ezra 5, we will see, unfortunately, trials drove the people to despair. And it drove the people into sin. When we see our work, when we see the things that we try to do faithfully come to a halt, it should drive us to our knees in prayer and supplication because we know the Lord is 
at work. And he is coming again. And we will celebrate in the wedding feast of the Lamb when he returns.